0: Welcome back. Not long ago I was leaving church and people know me as somebody that works in the finance realm and I had this person come up to me and very seriously they said, Ron, you're a financial expert, what advice would you give me? (laughs) I Buy low and sell high was the first thought, but then I said, well, here's my best advice that I can give you that will last you for a lifetime, and that is to spend less than you earn and do it for a long time. Well, we're switching in this session from owing to growing, just the opposite. And the less you owe, the more you can grow. And one of our principles is that you need to plan for financial margin, cash flow margin, because the unexpected is always going to occur. The repair that you didn't expect, the medical emergency that you didn't expect, the, any number of things can come along, and they the, expect, the unexpected is to be expected. And the problem is that most people have very little margin in their finances. Very few have uh, some emergency money set aside, for example, or some savings amount set aside for that next major purchase that they're going to have. We want to talk a bit about that. And this whole idea of the uh, concept of cash flow margin, typically it works like this. We know, and we've talked about the pie chart, live, give, O, grow, and typically, people prioritize that spending by number 1 well, I have to have money to live so that becomes the first priority I have to pay back my debt obviously and frankly the debt, the lender is always going to have first call uh, on your money because they're not going to go away they're going to get paid I have to pay taxes of course so now I've spent money on my living I spent money on my debt I spent money on my taxes And I know I need to set a little bit aside for that college education fund or for something. Uh, Therefore, I don't have anything left to give. So I don't give. And the, the typical response is, well, if I didn't have to pay so much in taxes, I would have more to give. And so taxes becomes kind of the bogeyman. But let me tell you this. I think that there's a biblical priority use of money. And uh, if I looked at it this way, the, the biblical priorities, first of all, the two most productive things you can do with money is to give and to save or to grow. Why do I say that? Well, you're giving, if I read Scripture right, and we've talked about this, it allows me to experience the joy of giving, but it also uh, results in eternal rewards of some sort. So when I am thinking eternally, giving becomes a high priority. The saving for the future is also a productive use of money because it it means that I'll have that money uh, to have at some point. And then, biblically, it says the borrower becomes the lender's slave and the wicked man borrows and does not repay. So biblically, I have to repay what I owe. So I owe my debt and I owe my taxes. And then what's left is my living expenses. And so typically, if I give, if i save if i pay off my debt if i pay my taxes then what's left is what i have available to spend on my lifestyle but typically we turn it around and my lifestyle becomes the first objective and the only way to fund my lifestyle is to use debt or credit of some sort so what we want to do is we want to turn that around if you will and the only way we can turn it around is to do something that is biblical, and that is to take a long-term perspective. And we've talked about, from a principle standpoint, that the longer term the perspective, the better the decision that I can make today. So if I'm thinking five years down the road, ten years down the road, fifteen years down the road, if I'm thinking eternally, I'm more apt to make a better decision today. You know, giving up today's desires for future benefits is necessary because you want the magic of compounding working for you as opposed to against you. And in financial literacy courses, compounding has been called the eighth wonder of the world. In other words, a little bit over a long time frame becomes a lot in the long term. So let the magic of compounding working for you. And here's a couple of illustrations of that. Sometimes you have to give up today's desires for future benefits, and uh, boy, an illustration of that is something that I had the privilege of experiencing when we started the Ron Blue Institute at Indiana Wesleyan University uh, with the idea of helping people or providing research and curriculum and so forth. And we hired an administrative assistant uh, early on. And this was a young lady that came from a home where there were no college graduates she had to kind of find her own way, and she found her way to Indiana Wesleyan University somehow. She was from Northern Ohio and uh, determined that she wanted to go there to college, uh, and that she made a commitment that if she went to college, she wanted to end college with no more than $15,000 in student debt. That was her goal, that was her objective. Well, contrary to a lot of her classmates, that meant that she had to work, it meant that she had to uh, babysit, work in the uh, cafeteria, work various places, uh, and in order to not take on the student debt. And she made it through college, and when she graduated, she had 16000 in student debt. And then she determined that she was going to pay that off within a year. So that meant that she lived in a Apartment with somebody else rather than by herself. She continued to drive the car that she had. She made a lot of choices of giving up maybe what would be desires, and she paid that $16,000 off uh, in 10 months. So now she was debt-free. And I thought, well, that's the end of the story, but it wasn't the end of the story. Because as we were revising a college textbook for personal finance, there were several emails that were going back amongst the PhDs that were involved in this, and I was on that, and so was she. We were copied on it. And the, the uh, young PhD that was writing uh, the textbook said, Why don't we put in there for uh, college students to save $10,000 while they're in college? And one of the older PhDs, he said, well, that's ridiculous. That can never, ever happen. Don't even put that in there. It's so unrealistic. Well, Beth was on the email list, and she said, wait a minute. She said, while I was in college, she said, I saved $6,000 to buy a car. She said, I uh, paid $2,500 down on my student debt, and I put $1,500 in an emergency fund. Well, you add that up and that's $10,000. So this young woman not only ended her college uh, totally out of debt within 10 months, but effectively had saved $10,000 while she was doing all of that. Why? Because she was willing to give up something today for a benefit in the future. And now she's free, if you will, financially as free as anybody could possibly be. So here you have a young single girl who in six years had not only graduated from college and had paid off all of her debt, she had in effect saved $10,000 while she was in college. But she gave up a lot to get that. Now, most of us don't want to give up maybe things like that, but the reality is that example, we'll call it even extreme because of the results that it had but is is an example that all of us need to follow. And on the other side, after you're out of debt, when you've shifted from owing to growing, then you need to do something, and that's called let the magic of compounding work for you over a long time frame. There's been a story that's been reported uh, fairly recently about a janitor, a person who never had a job greater than being a janitor. He also worked in the service station. Uh, so he was always an employee in a fairly low-level job in terms of pay is concerned. And he died in his early 80s recently. And he left, $8.3 million was left. Well, what happened? Well, he started working when he was in his 20s and he died 60-some years later. And during that time, effectively, what he had done was save about $300 a month out of anything that he earned. And if you would take $300 a month for 60 years plus and compound that out at 8%, that's how you would get to $8.3 million. So, effectively, what he had done was lived within his income, he'd saved $3,600 a year, he had invested that money, and in the end, it effectively turned out at an 8% compounded rate worth $8.3 million, Meaning that he had to give up that $3,600 a year in order to have the $8.3 million. But that's the magic of compounding, and that's how it can work for you. Not too long after I had started in my financial planning business, I had a, a couple uh, that was a client, and. Her father had been a seminary professor uh, and had retired, and he had been retired for a number of years. And his, his wife and him had just moved into an assisted living place. And his, uh, her mother, his wife, uh, required full-time care, and he was living in an apartment in this assisted living place. And she said that it's costing them about 40000 a year to live there, and my father is worried about running out of money. Can you go talk to him? So I went and I sat down with him. And uh, I I said, tell me a little bit about your background. He said, well, he'd been a seminary professor. He'd never earned more than $10,000 in his life. Uh, When he had retired, he had $9,600. And he called his sister uh, about what to do with it. And uh, she had told him that the company she worked with was getting ready to go public. Maybe he wanted to put his $9,600 there. Well, when I looked at their financial situation, after a number of years of retirement, uh, there was, uh, he, he told me, he said, my wife has $300,000 in certificates of deposit, I've got $200,000 in certificates of deposit. And he said, I think we own some stock also. I said, well, tell me about it. Well, it turned out that they owned about $1.2 million worth of stock. And he'd never made more than $10,000, and he'd saved $9,600. Now, he happened to put that money in a company uh, that had done very, very well. And so $40,000 a year, he could not really outlive that $40,000 a year. But he had to have the $9,600 by not spending the $9,600. And the magic of compounding worked for him in retirement, but also God's provision worked for him. And I said, what did you learn through all of this? What would you tell me as a financial guy? And he said, God will always provide. He said, let me tell you one story. Uh, When they were in seminary, they had an infant daughter and every Friday, the milkman would come. It was $2 for the milk for the week. And it was Friday and they had no money whatsoever. And the milkman was coming up the back uh, sidewalk Uh, to deliver the milk and collect his $2. And at the same time, somebody knocked on the front door. He said, I knew who was coming up the back door, so I went to the front door. And it was a neighbor lady from upstairs, and she said, you know, I was in church Wednesday night, and God convicted me that I needed to give you $2, and I just have neglected to do so. She handed him the $2, he walked to the back door, handed it to the milkman, and got the milk. He said, I learned early on that God always provides. Well, here was a person who lived within their income for all of their life, and when they ended up near the end of their life, they were very well off financially. Will everybody end up there? No, not everybody will. But there is something called the magic of compounding. I used to use the illustration that if you saved $83 a month, that was... Uh, $1,000 a year and if you did that over a working life from age 25 to uh, age 65 that was 40 years so you would have saved $40,000 and if you looked at compounding charts at 12 percent and that was realistic at the time I was using that illustration $1,000 a year compounded or $83 a month compounded out for 40 years turns into 1 million dollars so I had to give up spending 40000 in the short-term for the million in the long-term. Will that happen always? No, again. But it illustrates the point that in order to have something out here, I need to give it up right now in the short-term. It is a financial maturity issue. Are you willing, able to give it up in the short-term for the long-term? Now, we've got a chart that we've already looked at once, and I want to go into it in a little more detail. This time, it's called the sequential investing. And if you look at the sequential investing, it goes from uh, left to right, and each, uh, there's silos, each of them goes up. And it starts with those who are struggling, those who really are having all kinds of trouble, making even ends meet. It moves to those who are surviving, and those who who are surviving are maybe living paycheck to paycheck, they're making ends meet, but they're just surviving. And the next level of financial wherewithal, if you will, is those that are stable, in that they have a little bit of cash flow uh, for the, that they're able to put away. And then you move to the next category, and that is those who are secure. They've saved for their, uh, meeting their long-term goals, they're secure in their financial situation, uh, and basically they're secure, and that's a pretty good feeling. However, I will say this, that if I ask an audience, if you could ask me one question, I think I know the question that you would ask me. And the question is, how am I doing? And a lot of people are secure and they just don't know it. They don't know that they're doing so much better than most other people, that they are secure. And then finally, you get those at the far right are the surplus. So it moves from struggling to surviving, to stable, to secure, to surplus. And there's a financial services company that even calls that the 5S journey, moving from the struggling to the the surplus. So here's the issue that we need. How do I, where am I, and what do I have to do to move to the next level, to get from struggling to surviving or surviving to secure, or stable and from stable to secure? What do I need to do? And on the chart are several things that you should do, for example, If you're struggling, the first thing that you need to do is to figure out how to get out of the credit card and consumer debt. So you need to spend less than you earn, which is a financial principle, in order to make that move. So you know there's no shortcut to that. There's no magic bullet. In fact, living within your income, living and spending less than you earn is the only way you move from level to level. Those that are surviving, they need to begin to think about putting some money away uh, in a margin, an emergency account. And those who are stable uh, need to begin thinking about, am I saving for the long term? Am I putting money in a college fund? Am I saving to pay off my mortgage? What am, what am I saving for, for the long term? And then those that are there need to think, do, if I get to, to the surplus level, what am I gonna do with it? Am I going to use it to maybe increase my giving, maybe to pay off my home mortgage, maybe, uh, to start a business, whatever it might be in the long-term, if I'm in the surplus category, I need to pre-think what I might do. In other words, it's the answer to the question, how much is enough? And once I've answered that question, then I know what I'm going to do with the surplus. So that's the pathway and the secret, if you will, of going from owing to growing, is to be living within your income and putting money into that next, next uh, savings category. You know, we call it sequential investing because most people think that the way that you make money is investing. That's really not true. Uh, We call it investing, but we say, well, if I have an emergency fund, that's an investment. If I have a college fund, that's an investment. People don't typically make a lot of money investing unless they're professionals. They make money. They preserve their money by investing, perhaps, but they don't typically uh, make a lot of money on the investing. So we call this sequential investing because when you start thinking about investing, there are no magic bullets. This chart depicts what you need to be doing next. And until you get to the surplus category, you really don't have any money that you can afford, if you will, to lose or desire to lose. It's called the 5S journey. Well, when we think about that, what we need what what we need to be doing is setting some goals and making some decisions. So uh, let's talk first of all about setting some goals. And the reality is that every goal that you set is a statement of faith. I think when I th- when I think of biblically setting goals, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Nehemiah. And just to relate the story, if you remember. Nehemiah's brothers had come back and they had given a report about Jerusalem, the walls were burned, the gates were broken down. And it says that Nehemiah wept, mourned, fasted, and prayed for days. So his first thing was that he identified with the problem, if you will, and he went to the Lord and he prayed. And he prayed specifically. He said, Lord, give me favor with the king, because he was the cupbearer to the king. Well, what did he mean by that? What he meant by that, as we read the story, we knew that he was going to ask the king for something, and he wanted to have favor. So he prayed, asked the Lord for favor, and then he was uh, presenting the wine to, uh, to the king, and the king said to him, Nehemiah, your face is sad. That is just nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah said, I was afraid. And he was deathly afraid. He was very afraid. Well, why was he afraid? He was afraid because the penalty for being sad in the presence of the king was death. Well, interesting. He prayed. He asked something specifically. The king responded to him, and his first response was fear. However, he took an act of faith. He took a step of faith, and he asked the king for help. And the king ultimately gave him that, gave him everything that he asked for. There's a sequence there. There is something significant there. And then Nehemiah went uh, to Jerusalem. He, he gathered all of the resources. He went to uh, Jerusalem. And it says he surveyed the situation. And it said, then he called the elders together. And he said, you see the problem that we're in. You see the disgrace that we're in. The walls are broken down. And The gates are broken, we're a disgrace, we're a disgrace to what God had promised us. Going through a process here, he had set a goal and he said, let's rebuild the wall, and he said, let's us rebuild the wall, and they said, yes, we will build the wall. So he gathered his forces and they rebuilt the wall, and you know the story, a lot of conflict, a lot of things that didn't go right. But here's what happened. The wall was built and the wall was rebuilt in 52 days. Now, never do you see that that, uh, Nehemiah set a goal of rebuilding the wall in 52 days. His goal was to rebuild the wall. That was the mission. And he went through prayer, he experienced fear, he determined reality, set the goal of rebuilding the wall and God was the one that said it'll happen in this particular way. I think it's a great example for us. When we look at the... Uh, sequential investing chart. What's the goal? God, what would you have me to do? God, what, what goal is there out there? Uh, maybe it is, Lord, how are we going to provide a college education for our kids? Maybe it is, God, how am I going to get a washer or a dryer? God, whatever it is, we go to Him first of all in prayer. And will we get it immediately? Not necessarily. Will we experience fear? Probably, because we're dealing with the unknown. But here's what will happen. The goal will always be accomplished if it's a goal that God put in my heart, and God will get all of the glory. I won't get the glory, He'll get the glory. So who gets the glory for the 52 days? God got the glory for that. So my challenge to you is to look at that uh, sequential investing chart, pray through it, set a goal, trust God for the results, and then give Him the glory when it's accomplished. And I could go story after story after story about how I've seen that work out even in my own life. So that's what I call faith goal setting. And just remember that every goal is a statement of faith. And then lastly, you're going to have to make some decisions. Well, there are certain things about decision making that people really mess up on. First of all, most people fall into one of three traps that I've seen. The first trap is this. It's called the binary trap. The binary trap says, should I do this or not? Should I buy that car or not? Should I buy that house or not? Should I go here or not? How many choices do you have? Two. Well, if you've only got two choices, yes or no, then your decision can never be any better than the, than the alternatives that you know about. So if you ask the question maybe differently to open up the number of alternatives that you have, you get out of the binary trap. For example, and a way to do that is to say, are there any other alternatives? So I'm, in a bi- I'm evaluating this, and should I or shouldn't I? Ask yourself the question, are there any other alternatives to get out of the binary trap? A second trap that we fall into is called the intuitive trap. And the intuitive trap is, and this one you hear all the time, why did you do that? Well, I felt like it was the right decision. You felt like it? Is that the way you made your decision on the basis of your feelings? Question I would ask, how often have your feelings lied to you? Well, if you're like me, a lot. So the intuitive trap says that I go by my feelings rather than some logical process, which we'll talk about. And then the third trap that people fall into is the voting trap. And the voting trap works this way. I would like to do this, and then I gather all the opinions of people and I let them vote on my decision, or I tell them what I really want to do and I get them to vote for me so that I have now validated my decision. Now, if there's any conviction that you're feeling on these particular traps, it's intentional. That's what I intended to do because I've fallen into all of those traps over time. See a lot of people that have fallen into those traps. So what do we need to do? What we need to do is to compare the alternatives that we have to our goals, priorities, or objectives, not to one another. So I don't want to look at all of my, comparing my alternatives to one another, this one, this one, this one, or this one, but what I want to do is to find out what are my goals, objectives, and values. Whenever I think of decision-making and following some process of making a decision, I think about my youngest son, Michael, Uh, When Michael was uh, in high school, he became a really good tennis player, and he was offered multiple scholarships. He became a nationally ranked tennis player and was offered many, many scholarships and many, many universities. And how do you choose when you've, how do you pick between a Notre Dame and a Texas and a Virginia and whatever the schools were? And so I had taught decision-making, and I said, Michael, why don't you list your objectives? What do you really want? And so, he spent some time, and he listed about 20 objectives, uh, from the highest objective, highest priority, all the way down to the lowest uh, priority. And uh, listed all 20 of those out, and then he put the schools down that he was seriously considering, and he was comparing the schools against the objectives. And it came out that the University of Texas was the one that really met the objectives the best. But when he went to Texas, so he went to Texas. And he went to Texas, uh, things, he wasn't real happy the first semester. Uh, He didn't get to play as much as what he thought he would get to play. And so he was looking at giving up tennis uh, and uh, changing schools. So as we went through all of that thinking, I said, Michael, why don't you look at why you went to Texas in the first place? Because if you had the wrong objectives, then you don't want to make the same mistake the second time. A lot of times we make a decision we, and it turns out to be a wrong one, we learn from it. So he went back and he looked at the objectives versus the, uh, or his objectives in, against Texas and the other schools that he was now considering, and it still was Texas. So he decided to stay at Texas. And it turned out that one of the players on the team about that time got kicked off the team for some disciplinary reasons and Michael got to play. And he got to play all four years at Texas. But the important thing was that he knew why he went to Texas and so when it came time to question that, he could go back as to why he had made the decision that he had because he knew the objectives. Kind of a classic case of uh, decision making. Well, it's time to wrap it up. And what are you gonna do next? And here's all I want to counsel you with. We've talked about God owning it all, five principles of money management, live, give, oh grow, the uses of money. We've talked about decision making, goal setting. We've talked about a lot of different things, but here's my encouragement. Just remember, change takes time, but we serve a God who's got all the time in the world because he's a God who exists outside of time. He's the God of eternity. So give yourself time and remember the grace of God who wants only what is best for you. Give yourself under his care, under his timing, to make the changes that are necessary.